Hey up and welcome to the strategy sessions. My name is Andy Jarvis and today I am joined by Juliet Hodges. Juliet, give us a quick wave. Hello. Hello, Juliet. Juliet is um, from the Booper Behavioral Science team. We're going to talk to Juliet in just one minute, but before we do, I have something to sell to you. Of course I do. I always do. Um, just a quick reminder, if you haven't checked out the um, digital marketing strategy course that I have available with the University of Vasa in Finland, do it now. It's only 250 euros, 249 actually, and it will help you build a strategy for your organization, a marketing strategy, that is. Um, work along with it as you go, build the steps in, and by the time you get to the end of it, you'll have a working document that will take you into um, just doing better marketing for your organization. That's it. That's the end of the advertisements. You've come here to listen to Juliet, and this is exactly why you need to do it. Juliet is um, an expert in nudging people in behavioral information and how you use that to help people make, uh, is it making better decisions? I don't know. We'll ask Juliet. I'm a big fan. I read books like Inside the Nudge Unit, which is how the government do it, Influence, um, which is kind of the, the seminal work i suppose about uh, this type of how you use small changes in how you ask things to elicit different responses so enough of me waffling juliet say hello and tell us a little bit about yourself where do you work hello um so i'm juliet and i'm absolutely delighted to be here with you today andy um so i work for booper in the behavioral insights team i've been there nearly five years now which feels like a long time um and we're basically a internal consultancy and what we do is we work with all different types of, of teams across the business. So Boop is quite a diverse business. We've got insurance, we've got clinics, we've got one hospital, there's dental, there's care homes, there's all kind of different healthcare services. And we act as an internal consultancy just to kind of help with business challenges from a behavioral perspective, basically. That sounds fantastic. So there's a, a team of five, did you say, of you there? Doing, doing there's three of us, very three. small. I don't know why I was living, five? <laughs> nearly, nearly the same, don't worry about it. So. Um, let's just take a step back for a minute before we talk about what happens at Booper and how your working behavioral insights work, just to sort of explain what behavioral insights is. It's often referred to as nudging people. Um, as I said, this book is called Inside the Nudge Unit, um, used in politics, used in um, heavily in, in Obama's administration. Um, became popular in Britain under David Cameron, used by con artists as well. Let's be honest, you know, people who are trying to fleece you from your money do nudging really, really well. And is starting to kind of make inroads into marketing by people actually working out what they should and shouldn't be doing. So what is nudging and behavioral insights and what's the, the thought process behind it? So there are lots of different schools of thought behind what it is. And I don't want to kind of offend any sort of academic circles um, with how I'm going to describe this. Um, but a nudge is really simply um, about influencing people to act in one way without materially changing their choice set. So um, one example that I thought was really clever is a while ago, the Tesco down the road from me, um, when you were checking out the self-checkout, there would be a pop-up that said, do you want to round up your, um, you know, your bill comes to £6.42, do you want to round that up to £6.50 and give the rest to charity? Now that would be a nudge compared to having a donation box in the corner where if you did have some change in your hand you could put it in there but actually it's not something that's coming at you and you know is really in your at the top of mind and in your attention. So it's kind of about designing the environment in such a way that people are going to be more likely to act in one way or another and there are different schools of thought about you know how the brain works and how you can influence so um obviously daniel kahneman really popularized the system one system two kind of dual system of of thinking where we have this automatic system in the brain that responds um just instinctively to our environment and actually that drives the vast majority of our decisions whereas we think we have this kind of system two really rational really conscious way of thinking about the world and actually experiments show that we are really kind of driven along this automatic instinctive path and, and I think the key thing to point out about nudging is you mentioned that about without fundamentally changing the frame of reference. So I have, I wouldn't say arguments, but long discussions with people who keep telling me marketing's evil and they, they, they often misunderstand marketing and advertising or they use them interchangeably on like the two different things. Don't worry about it. But they also believe that advertising changes people's behaviors. And I'm like, no, advertising doesn't work like that. It, it, it influences your choices. But, you know, you're not going to go out and buy a Rolex for 10,000 quid just because you've seen an ad for a Rolex. If you don't have 10,000, no, if you had 10,000 pounds for a watch, you might pick a Rolex over a tag or something. 
So it's choice architecture rather than anything else. So it's not about changing people's behavior, is it? It's about influencing slight behaviors within the sphere they were already in. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I would argue there's no such thing as neutral choice architecture. So you're going to be influenced to behave one way or the other based on your environment. And actually, if no one is architecting that, no one's thinking about what would be the best choice for the most number of people, then people are going to make quite bad decisions. I mean, one example of that is um, pension saving. So we know that people don't save for pensions. So the government have introduced a sort of auto-enroll scheme. I think it's kind of two or 3% of your salary. Um, all employers have to enroll their employees into that scheme. And you could argue, well, it should be more money. It should be this, it should be that. But actually for the vast majority of people, they wouldn't have saved into their pension. Otherwise they can opt out if they want to. And this is just kind of the most benefit for the most number of people. So yeah, I think there's just no way of framing things neutrally. People are always gonna be influenced one way or the other. And I think that's really important because the, the the bit when people initially hear about nudges and things like that, often through newspaper headlines, which let's be honest, is rarely the best way to get your information about anything. But there's a sensational element, a sensationalist element of government trying to change people's behavior or, um, you know, evil company trying to influence people to trade up to this or trade up to that. Um, and the ethics of it are really important, but there are, it's not as if nobody in the nudging business has ever considered the ethics of this, right? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's enormous. And actually there was a really interesting kind of rebuttal to the inside the nudge unit book, um, where a kind of legal scholar sort of really delved into the ethics of it. And it was a, a really kind of interesting, if a bit long read. Um, but also I think, especially for the work that we do at Bupa, the FCA have put out really clear guidelines for how you can use behavioral economics and what's appropriate in a financial um, product setting. So there's, you know, lots of people thinking about this. I mean, in, especially in my PhD, there are lots of kind of academic debates about, you know, should we be using this for this? Should we be using this for this? You know, it's lots of people are, are kind of wrestling with that idea, definitely. So let's get into what you do at Bupa because, you, you know, again, the sensationalist approach to this is, oh my God, you work at Bupa doing behavioral insights. You're forcing people to buy private insurance instead of using <laughs> the NHS. Juliet, you're evil. How do you sleep at night, Juliet? <laughs> With difficulty. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, so we hardly touch the marketing at all, actually. We really do very little work with those teams. Um, and I spend more of my time, I spend a lot of time with the insurance part of the business, looking at things like how do we work with the clinicians that we hire? So it's quite interesting because they're kind of third parties. Bupa doesn't actually employ them, but that we reimburse them for the treatments that they do. So kind of how we make that relationship kind of work for both of us and make sure that it's, you know, there's no cases of over-treatment and things like that for our patients is really um, an important part of it. There's also things like the customer journey and making sure that because it can be a little bit disjointed going privately versus the NHS where it's all under one umbrella and you just kind of scoot through, um, looking at how we can make those journeys as smooth as possible. And even, um, you know, uptake of certain products. So for example, um, one thing I'm working on at the moment is trying to get more people to use direct access. And this is basically a pathway where if you have Bupa insurance, you can call up for certain conditions and get straight through um, and be triaged to you know the appropriate specialist without having to go get a referral from your GP. But that's a really naughty behavioral problem because Boop has spent you know 70 years they've been in business saying if you want Boop treatment you have to get a referral from your GP first. So it's quite an interesting kind of difficult um, behavioral challenge to get into. So it's it's things like that. It's not really about selling insurance. It's about kind of making the journey work well and kind of improving health outcomes for people. Brilliant. I'm fascinated and I appreciate you. There's probably only so much you can tell me. So feel free to say, shut up, Andy, and we can edit this bit out. Um, <laughs> I, I read a book called The Checklist Manifesto. Not sure oh, you've yeah. read that, which um, talks about um, basically the outcomes in medicine and surgery versus the outcomes in, in flying. And it was a surgeon who went to have a look at why there are so few accidents in air travel compared to surgery. And what it turned out was that the, the way that they fly planes is very much, uh, yes, the pilot is in charge, but they run everything by a checklist and checklist, the, the science of how you produce the checklist becomes really important, but everybody knows their role and checks certain things on the checklist. And if certain things aren't happening, the number two can take over. Contrast that to surgery where the surgeon is effectively God in that room and they talk to nurses and uh, junior staff in there who saw things going wrong, but didn't feel they could get they were empowered to speak up. 
So by introducing a checklist where they just had to stop and go through the things actually flagged loads of simple problems like bits of dressing being left in the wound and stuff like that, which, which really, really fascinating book. But what, what I took from that book, or one of the many things I took from that book were many surgeons are assholes who, um, <laughs> now you obviously can't say that because you work at Booper, I can, and I'm not going to ask you if you think that, but surgeons have spent a career getting to, to effectively the peak of their profession and are often used to giving instruction rather than receiving instruction. So how does that therefore influence what you do? And, and that must be an interesting challenge in itself, not just the information you need to give, but how you actually liaise with that group of people. Yeah, no, definitely. And I, I do think that is something that is sort of evolving out of the medical profession. I think you do get a very old school breed of doctor and surgeon who are very kind of my way or the highway. They're quite paternalistic and aren't really interested in other people's um, opinions or um, even the sort of preferences of the patient because they feel like they know best. But thankfully, that is something that I think is um, yeah evolving out of, of the medical field. And I guess from Booper's perspective, we don't have that much control over what goes on, um, you know, in a surgery, for example, because we're just kind of paying for it. So, you know, the surgeon that someone chooses and how that operation goes, um, you know, we don't always have access to the outcomes of, of what's happened and, and things like that. So it's something that I'm really interested in as well. It kind of partly prompted my PhD because I was originally interested in looking at how you incentivize clinicians um, to kind of have the best quality of patient care um, which we've slightly deviated from that but that was kind of what it was originally about but it's it's interesting because as Booper we kind of have limited control over that anyway. So we're going to come to your PhD in a minute because I'm, I'm fascinated by it and I want to dive into that um, but before we do just a, a little bit more about your your sort of day-to-day -day at Booper. One of the, one of the really interesting things I think about the behavioral science and behavioral insights approach to it is, is measurement. I, I often talk about marketing being, if you sort of drew a Venn diagram and, and in the circles, you had psychology, sociology, anthropology, and economics, and you kind of drag them all together right in the middle of all of those things would be marketing. Mm -hmm. I think the thing about the behavioral insights is that that sort of merging of economics and psychology together and looking at outcomes in a um, in a, a quant way, not just a wall mm. way. Um, is that an important part of what you do, like measuring the outcomes too? I wish it was. <laughs> the thing is, it can be so hard to get those outcomes. So, um, yeah, a lot of the time it will be we might be doing something quite small, like just feeding into the wording of an email or um, whatever it is, and it's not that common that we will have very good data on kind of pre and post, or we are rarely able to kind of do split tests and things like that. Um, sorry, if you can hear that siren, I live in South London and that's just yeah. a thing that happens. Sirens going past all the time. It's all right, it didn't come. Um, so uh, where was I? Oh yeah, experiments. Yeah, and also I think it's really difficult to get the numbers that you need to actually run a statistically significant with the right power kind of test. So I was really interested in running an experiment on trying to reduce surgeons performing knee arthroscopies. So it's a procedure that is the kind of clinical effectiveness is kind of debated. And it's something that tends to be overprescribed because patients are saying, I've got a sore knee, I want to do something about it. And it's, you know, it's an intervention. So people feel better about having done it. And we were looking at running an experiment, just sending letters out to say, to surgeons who were really overperforming these procedures, you know, you're an outlier, this is how you compare to the rest of your group. And I think there are around, in total, there's probably about 1500 um, musculoskeletal surgeons who were able to perform this that work for Booper. A smaller subset of that had done more than one in the last year. And then you're talking about actually tiny numbers. If you want to run two different conditions and compare the spread of, um, you know, different positions within the distribution and it just becomes you, you don't have the numbers to have the right statistical power so unfortunately and this is a drawback of doing a PhD I'm now really aware that there are kind of limits on these things and um, yeah it's not something that we are able to do all the time yeah okay but you, that, that would be your if you had the big data set that's where you'd be absolutely oh, definitely yeah yeah so let, let's talk about your PhD because I, I uh, you, you told me before we started what the subject is and mind-blowing is what you're studying so let, let, I'll let you explain yeah so let me 
explain kind of where it came from because it is a, it is a bit random so I got really interested in how you incentivize clinicians to provide the kind of best quality of care um, and I did a sort of deep dive into the literature about okay well how has behavioral science been used to influence clinicians in the past so there are things like um, you know trying to reduce antibiotic prescribing opioid prescribing trying to increase um, patients getting flu jabs things like that but one thing that really stood out to me was that everything in the literature was a kind of black or white behavior that you know you can say we want doctors to do more of this we want them to do less of this but actually when it comes to healthcare, it's not really that simple so you could do everything right and the patient could still have a bad outcome you could do everything wrong the patient could get better by themselves so it's really difficult to say we're going to nudge this behavior and not this behavior um so then i got really interested in shared decision making because having the patient fully understand what the different risks and benefits of all the different treatment options are and I think that's one thing I've really learned actually working in healthcare is there's not always a right answer um because I think we think oh you go to the doctor they'll fix it but actually th there is art as well as science and the role of the patient can be really important in that in helping to decide a treatment plan um so that was a behavior that I wanted to look at how we could increase they're so getting um, clinicians to engage in these conversations more effectively with their patients that led into end of life care discussions because these are conversations that don't always happen um, and especially at the time they should be happening so i think there can be a sort of diffusion of responsibility amongst clinicians particularly if you've got a patient who's got several different issues um, you know, you've had a cancer that's metastasized and then actually you're seeing someone about your lungs, someone about your bones. And it's very easy for no one to take responsibility for saying, OK, we're going to embark on palliative care. How what's important to you? What do you want to get out of this? Um, and then people just continue having quite aggressive treatments into end of life, which is not what we want because it um, kind of worsens quality of life. Um, so that's basically what I'm looking at. Um, and I've been looking at how how the decisions that we make at the moment occur so there's if you want to opt out of this kind of aggressive treatment if you're not expecting to have a full recovery so things like cpr um going into an icu having ventilation um you would fill out a form in the uk that's called an advanced decision to refuse treatment and the framing of that i think is really interesting because you're going into it saying i want to refuse treatment rather than you know i want to accept more comfort based care rather than you know so i ran an experiment to look at you know how do people respond to that and it turns out that people don't want to sign that form you know it's a really unpleasant way and actually in the uk i think only around four percent of people have filled one in even if they would rather have kind of more comfort based care at end of life than this kind of aggressive trying to prolong life at all cost care so it's really interesting and i think i'm kind of hoping there will be some quite important kind of outcomes of this research but um yeah it's, it's been a sort of long and meandering journey but that's where i've got to it's a really fascinating subject area because we do as, as people tend to make really really important decisions often at really really bad times um so i'm, I'm involved in a campaign at the moment um about uh, co-parenting when you separate as parents. Um, it, it hits a little bit close to home, but it, it's, all, it's a really positive campaign about having a conversation now rather than trying to have a conversation when you're separating. Because yeah. I could tell you from experience, if there's a good time and a bad time to have a conversation, <laughs> it's never in the middle of a separation, right? So yeah, the yeah. time to have that conversation is now. But you, you, we, we kind of have this hopeless optimism, don't we? I mean, was it half of all relationships with children end in failure? Yeah. Uh, failure end in separation not failure pick your language <laughs> properly so you know we have this hopeless optimism that everything's always going to be okay but then, so we won't have that conversation we have that conversation when our hearts are broken when everything's really mm. raw and it never works yeah similar but a little bit different with end of life care that we're probably only having those discussions and making those choices right at the wrong time when you're just not fully equipped to make that decision yeah that's a really good point it's a really interesting parallel and i think there is some there are some kind of different views on is it fair to remove hope from a patient who is kind of relying on that but um the evidence suggests that people actually prefer to have a kind of clearer view of what's going on and what their options are and actually there's some awful studies that have shown something like sort of 60 70 percent of patients who are having palliative chemotherapy which is purely to relieve symptoms it's not 
curative actually think that there is a chance that it could be curative and that they could survive it and I don't think it's fair to put people in that position so there is something around you know having conversations as early as possible but also making sure that someone knows they're responsible to initiate that conversation with their patient as well. So I had an old aunt and she might not have even been an aunt she might have just been someone we called an aunt but that's not the point <laughs> and, and she used to be a nurse and she so we're talking back when not even when tellies were black and white before tellies so she was quite she died a few years ago and she was quite old but I remember her telling me that when she first qualified as a nurse one of the first jobs that junior nurses got when they got onto to wards was to sit with dying people and hold the hand and talk to them as they died and she was like because she had to learn how to do it and it was a job for a young nurse and you just used to sit with old ladies usually all the old ladies are old men and you just sort of sit and stroke the hand and just talk to them and you know they knew they were dying you knew they yeah. were dying and your job was the your job was palliative care just to sit wow. and chat to them as their life ended and then she, i was like oh and she was like but by the time i'd kind of gone through the nurse it doesn't happen anymore it's not seen yeah. as a good use of time and there's other ways of managing it and we have monitors and beeps and things like that but it seems like a really while completely heartbreaking a really personal way of managing end of life care yeah <laughs> which are, are just, like it stuck with me the whole time and i don't know how you maybe like a, a 19 or 20 year old nurse and you just sort of thrust onto a ward and like oh by the way you know <laughs> go on you know. Um, but yeah, just a really in, a different way of approach. At times change, obviously, and, and mm. often for the better, I should say. I'm not harking back to 1945 being a golden age of medical treatment, you know, far from it. Um, yeah. But it, it, there's a lot, there's a long way to go, I think, is what I'm saying, in finding a, a great sweet spot for palliative care. Yeah, definitely. And I think, not that I want to um, talk about COVID particularly, but in the pandemic, that is something that we've seen is, you know, we went from right at the very beginning, no one could have their friends and family around. And it was all, all about the healthcare workers having to, um, you know, be with people and and to, I think things are a little bit, calm down a little bit now and it's a little bit easier, but um, yeah, it's, it's, it's tough and it's something we've all got to kind of think about. And obviously we don't want to. So I want to kind of, um, there's no easy way of doing this. There's no, there's no skillful, interesting segue from talking about people who people dying and end of life care into let's talk about marketing. So I'm just going to pull the handbrake up, spin <laughs> the wheel around and, and let's head off in a different direction with a screech of the tires. Um, so, so it's a marketing podcast and, and you, as well as working in Booper, have some um, gold star marketing credentials behind you as well. So wh where did you uh, go name drop? Where did you work earlier before you started? <laughs> so um, I started my career at Ogilvy in their um, behavioural science unit. Ogilvy changed as it then was. It's now Ogilvy Consulting. Brilliant. And, and that was working with companies who are using Ogilvy for advertising. Is that, that right? Yeah, mostly. There were some of our own clients that we had. So my the biggest client that I worked with was Diageo. I spent a lot of time with them. So what they were focused on was kind of increasing market share for spirits. So obviously, you know, people walk into a pub or a restaurant and they kind of have their usual that they order, which is more likely to be a glass of wine or, or a pint of beer than it is a gin and tonic. Mm -hmm. So I spent a lot of time thinking about how we can sell more gin and tonic so looking at menu oh, layout yeah <laughs> yeah exactly doing god's work um looking at menu layout looking at what happens behind the bar looking at you know supermarket layout and all of those different kinds of things so um that was that was a lot of fun so the, the podcast previous to this was with sarah shimmons who is now the global marketing director for smirnoff at the mm -hmm. Um, and I've worked with Sarah over a number of years on, on various things. Um, and I remember when I first started working in, in alcohol marketing, finding out about the guys and girls who went into bars to um, sort of bring products in for, for the certain beer companies, how the beer companies provided the fridges often to guarantee them top shelf placements. Yeah. Because that, that was what they felt. Now, it was almost kind of just an industry norm built on, you know, height of bars, people would walk up, what am I going to have top row? And, and that was it. But so you were almost looking at a similar sort of approach for spirits, but looking at where, you know, where is it, where's the best place to be in the menu? What should it be like on the countertop, all that sort of stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So menu psychology is absolutely fascinating. So I spent a this couple of years. This is a new one, brilliant. Go on. <laughs> 
Um, I spent a couple of years being the most boring day ever because I would sit down and be like, oh, look, like they want you to order this because of the way it's laid out. What a night. I do, how, how did it go? I'm going to swipe opposite on Tinder now. Not Juliet again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, my profile was obviously optimized. No, I'm kidding. Um, but so it's things like if something has a box around it, then you're three times more likely to order it in a menu. If they've taken the pound signs off, then you spend about 12% more because you see these sort of abstract numbers on the menu, but you don't think about them in terms of kind of being money. It's just a sort of number without a pound sign on it. And another thing is the way that the prices are kind of positioned. So we tend to think that 9.99 feels cheaper than 10 pounds, but actually if you take the two zeros off and just have 10, so it's one zero, um, that feels less than 999 because that's three digits versus two so um you'll kind of see these things on menus and be like wow you want me to order that and you taking the pounds on off you cheeky bastard like all of these things so um yeah we're we're having you back on for like a christmas special where we're going to do a (laughs) takedown of a number of menus because this is this is genuinely blowing my mind um (laughs) so so i was talking a, a client of mine who sells something for a fiver and they are talking about they, they want slash need to push their prices up. Uh, okay. They might be listening, so this, we can cl- class this as free consultancy. <laughs> the debate we're having, and it is, it's a debate based on um, a little bit of experience and a bit of gut feel. It, you know, let's be honest, there's no science in this, right? They are looking at pushing their price up from five to six quid. Mm-hmm. Um, and the debate is, well, how far can they push it without it being an issue? And there's a feeling around the discussions that we're having that actually, once they breach five, they could probably go all the way to nine because 10.10 is the next cycle yeah. of the step. And they, they would well know, well, five to six is a jump because we haven't put prices up for ages. I was like, yeah, but five to six, six is it seven? Is it eight? 10 seems like the next ne- next natural break. Um, but maybe we don't even need to worry about that. Maybe it's just how they display the price is the important thing. It could be. It could be. And it's things as well, like if you... Um... I don't know kind of what product this is, but if there's like a delivery charge, kind of rolling that into the price and being like free delivery, then that it's all that kind of framing really helps. So there's loads of Amazon, uh, eBay more than Amazon studies of people spending yeah. more. So if, if it's 60 quid plus five pound delivery or 67 quid with free delivery, they're oh, 67 <laughs> quid, buy that one. And you're like, Why? It's two quid more expensive. Oh, free delivery though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, then lads, well done. You know, um, eBay's awash with with that sort of study of that. So we we are, why as people are we so stupid? That's the interesting (laughs) thing. Why why can't we do this? Why can't we compute this? It's this um, system one part of the brain. So we tend to talk about it as um, Homer. It's our Homer brain. And he's just very driven by this kind of um, immediate gratification, sort of instinctive. And he's just not very good at, actually calculating what the pros and cons of certain things are so we are constantly battling battling this kind of dumb part of our brain that you know is just very impulsive so i, I talk at the we we met presenting at digital gaggle just last week and part of mine was about you uh, how the, the the brain works as well and and what that means for for copywriting and various other bits but the, the the chimp part of the brain and I, i'm often fond of saying we are just chimps in shoes aren't we that, that's all we are and <laughs> I'm not wrong when I say that. No, no, sadly, no. I mean, I, I would say if there's one thing that a career in behavioural science has unfortunately done for me is I've kind of lost faith in humanity. Like as long <laughs> as things are really easy um, and there's a kind of immediate benefit, you can get people to do pretty much anything. But even if it's really important, really worthwhile, if it's slightly hard, slightly painful, people just won't engage with it. Yeah. So. <laughs> So what's your, uh, is that why we're doomed when it comes to the obesity crisis, unless we take sort of government intervention to to stop us killing ourselves because it's easier and you get hit by eating more sugar? Yeah, pretty much. So, I mean, I spent an awful lot of my time thinking about, you know, for our corporate clients, for, um, you know, internal projects, how you can get people to sort of exercise and eat better. The problem is it's boring and it's hard and there's nothing that's going to overcome that and people try and you know gamify it try and do you know make it easier but it there's just no way and actually um it is really fundamentally down to the way the brain's wired and there was an amazing study where they um put people in an fmri machine and asked them to think about their future self and it activated the same part of the brain as when we think about other people so when you're thinking about 
you know, I'm going to procrastinate. I'm not going to go to the gym today. I'm going to go tomorrow. It feels like somebody else is going to go to the gym tomorrow for you. It doesn't feel like your future self is the same person as you. So that's why it's really, really difficult because anytime we put something off, we're like, someone else has to do it. That's, you know, future Juliet's problem. I can't relate to her at all. But also um, it makes it really difficult to make sacrifices now that won't benefit us until later. So if you have to go to the gym for like a month or two months to see any impact, you know, not doing it, can't be bothered. Who's, who's that in two months? It's not me. And same with saving for pensions, same with, you know, choosing healthy options at dinner. It's all of these things that, you know, our brain's actively working against us to help us do. It, it does make me wonder, how did we become the apex predator on this planet <laughs> when we're also bleeding stupid? Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know. so in, in, in marketing, we are um, obsessed with data. Um, and look, uh, marketing is kind of, gone through a couple of different transitions over the years and when i first started there was a lot of we think this will work and you could get data if you worked on massive campaigns with tv and radio but a lot of the time you're kind of working on gut feel and best practice and stuff like that the rise of digital brought pages and pages of data and the rise of performance marketing which is a phrase that makes my teeth itch to be honest with you um you know people think that you can look at a spreadsheet of numbers and, and derive everything you need to know from it i'm i'm very much believing you need qual and quant to make mm -hmm. this work um, but I, I think this rise of, of data has taken out, it's kind of moved the, the dial away from the behavioral side and the fact that people are making decisions about what we're seeing and what we're showing them. And just because you can see a percentage going up doesn't actually tell you the whole picture. So it is the rise of nudging and behavioral science. This is, this is a good thing, right? To help for marketing, at least to help counterbalance, um, mm. all, all the data jockeys that we've got telling us they know everything about the world. Please tell me I'm right with it. <laughs> no, I think it's, I think it's interesting. I, there's lots, I think the problems with a big data set is if you don't have a kind of hypothesis that you're going in with when you're analyzing it, you will find significant relationships between some of your variables. That doesn't necessarily mean that's a, an effect that's like strong or significant or important even in the real world. And I think it's really easy to get carried away with that and think, oh, you know, we found this thing in our data, but actually is that properly controlled for is, you know, is that an accurate finding that you're reporting? And I, I think they can work together. Like I have a really big, I think data science is really, really important. I wish I was kind of better with data than I am. And I think there's definitely room for, you know, experimentation, see what happens in the data and having really strong hypotheses about what's going to happen based on what you're doing and and all of that stuff but yeah I think I think people also give more credence maybe to data scientists and to behavioral scientists because people don't understand it so much and they're like "Ooh, data that must be really important and I, yeah. I can see a one or a zero so this must be true exactly yeah exactly <laughs> and yeah people just if anything seems a little bit too complicated for them to understand they think it's it must be right and must be very clever and it's weird, isn't it, that we, we put so much faith in data and ones and zeros, yet the one thing that proves to me that people don't have the first idea about data at all is the R number. I'm going to say the COVID klaxon is going to go off again. <laughs> now, you talk to anyone who's not a data scientist about the R number and you go, right, so yeah, when, when R equals one, it, when it goes above one, it means it's um, we've got exponential growth in the virus, and, but it's only one yeah like, that one's not a, one's fine no 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 <laughs> above one's exponential growth but 0.9 fine yeah you know, below what nobody understands it i i've been i've spent 14 months trying to understand how one anything above one's bad and below one's good and i still don't feel i know it nobody yeah. understands it but we, we have so much faith in numbers you, you have put a number next to a marketing story and a newspaper will publish it you say we talked to five people and did some focus groups like ah, it's not proper information that it's rubbish yeah yeah exactly and actually some of the stats that you do see in marketing are just absolute like they would never stand up in any kind of academic paper and i know that's not the benchmark but it should be you know it should be it should be like there needs to be and i think there is a really big problem with organizations not really understanding data and how to use it and what its limitations are and you end up with people who are just kind of crunching numbers in excel but they're not actually doing proper statistics and that is a real bugbear of mine um but 
I think when you have people at the top who don't really understand it, but they're just like, oh yeah, numbers is good. Then you end up with people in the mid-level who don't really understand it and are just kind of putting whatever numbers they can get out of Excel based. I don't know. It's a, it's a tricky one. It's a massive bugbear. And it's, there's a whole sort of digital PR field is built around um, pitching spurious studies in inverted commas to, to stupid newspapers um, <laughs> or, or publications. And, and look, there's the whole industry about it, right? And open up a, a newspaper today or go online and have a look and you will see a story that will sell you, you know, 49% or, or 73% of people in the UK are planning on painting their kitchen blue this year as leads a story from the blue paint manufacturer. Like, oh, no <laughs> shit. Why? And what was yeah. it? We, 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 we interviewed 73 people and asked them the question, do you like the color blue in your kitchen? And like, that's not <laughs> the, do you know, it, it's just, yeah. yeah, you see it all the time. Just like leading question given to ex over extrapolation into some ridiculous headline that then someone publishes because the journalists don't know what they're talking about either. And you're like, yeah. Oh. And it's, it's the worst, I think, in shampoo ads where they'll be like, women said that their hair has never been better. And it's like 90% of 11 women. <laughs> like, great. The other, the other thing is, and I, I read the, because um, I, I, am, I, I am much more boring than you. I read all the small print and stuff and sometimes go to the websites to see what the <laughs> science is. And do you know what the test is on a lot of shampoo ads? What? They do split testing, right? And they, they do control groups and it might be like 75 women, but they get, they have 75 of them wash their hair with just water. Oh my God. And then they, they get them to wash it with the shampoo products and then go, and so if you read the small print at the bottom, it'll say versus water only. I'm like, no shit. So using your <laughs> chemical treatment, yeah. that's better than not using a chemical, you, know, like you, you artificially put a shine oh and feel God. on and I, who would have thought, right? I it was know. like, why wasn't it a hundred percent? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, I was like, wow. Okay. Um, yeah, I, so I love diving into all of that stuff. I, I am, as I've told you twice on this call already, the most boring <laughs> man around. So, um, I love it. Any other bits of, of marketing guff that really um, make your teeth itch about this sort of stuff? Oh, that's a good question. Um, sorry, another siren. This is just my life. Um, the, the joy of South London. I know. I never realised until lockdown that I live in such a rough part of town. Like there are just sirens every like 20 minutes or so. Um, insane. Anyway, um, what else? I find, do you know, I do find bad deployment of behavioral science very frustrating. Um, and one big one that everyone has really kind of glommed onto is social norms, right? So we know that if people are doing something, we're more likely to do it ourselves. And a few years ago, BT had a campaign that was just like nine out of 10 people love our broadband or something. And I kind of thought, you know, I, I see what, you know, I see where you're going with it, but could you not like you have copywriters? Could you not have like, you know, worked on that a little bit and got something it a little. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I saw an ad on the tube a couple of years ago for a, um, a kind of workplace wellbeing company. And their whole ad was nine out of 10 people on this tube are really sad at work. And the other one person uses our products and isn't sad. And I was kind of like, so 90% of people don't use your product is what you've said in that ad. So it was, it's just things like that. I'm like, just do better, try harder. My, my favorite is, um, and I say favorite in inverted commas, is the appalling use of fear of missing out and time-based discounts um or, or um, um not time-based uh, what's the word i'm looking for i've had a complete like mental blank scarcity yeah. there we are yeah. using scarcity and things that have zero scarcity digital downloads yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like download this product now before it runs out it's like it's a digital <laughs> pdf it ain't running out, right? It's not an yeah. NFT. It, it's not running out. It's a PDF and a click download. Doesn't matter when the clock ticks to zero and then you let it go past and then you get an email going, only six more days to download yeah. it. And you're like, oh man, it's like, stop drinking the Kool-Aid. Just, yeah. <laughs> you can do this in another way. It's fine. Yeah. But I, I mean, like booking a hotel room now is just an ordeal. Like the way the, the pop-ups and the, you know, there's 11 people looking at this room and they all hate you and are going to book it before you. And like, it's all just... Yeah. 73 yeah. people know where you live and will break yeah. into your house if you're not going to be there on this date. And you're like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's just, 
absolutely like horrendous. Yeah, uh, scarcity and FOMO are terrible. So it, right back at the beginning of the podcast, I had a guy on called, um, uh, I've forgotten his name again. I'm having a nightmare this morning. But he <laughs> did a, a thing called the Contrepreneur Formula, Mike Winnett, that's it. And he dug through the steps that entrepreneurs, so these often American guys who come stand on stage and like, you know, sell you how to make a million from property and stuff like that. And sell it. And he basically went and watched loads of them and built, uh, basically showed you what their formula was of how they use fear of missing out and scarcity, social proofing, and kind of tick all these boxes along the way to, to build it to a crescendo. I find it in interesting and fascinating how they stitch it together. And, and for me, the ethical line is, does the product do what you're saying it's going to do? And mm. is the price right for that product? So if I, I don't have a problem with people stitching that story together to bring people to a point where they're going to buy if the product they're selling them is worth the money they're charging for it. And if it does the thing that says it's going to do. So these guys saying, give me four grand and I'll show you how to become a property millionaire is completely unethical because it doesn't work. Mm. If you, if you're selling them something at the end that it does work, then okay, that's fine. Yeah. Um, but do you have any thoughts on the, the, the people using this in an unethical way or any, have you seen any examples of that type of thing? Well, when, I was at Ogilvy, we had a kind of a hard and fast rule that was, it's fine to use these kind of techniques if it's a product that through normal use will do no harm, basically. So we were kind of like, okay, we're working with a big alcohol brand, but we're nudging people from one drink to another. It's not like people are out for a Diet Coke and we're like, no, actually, like add some vodka oh, to God, that. Vodka. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, so we tended not to work with um, cigarette companies, for example, because through normal use, you're doing harm. Um, even gambling, I think, is quite a, a tricky one because you're losing money if you do it, really. Um, so we wouldn't work with gambling companies. And I think that was quite a useful line to mm -hmm. have in terms of ethics. Have I seen unethical things? There are definitely... So there's quite an interesting discourse around sludge, which is nudge used for kind of bad things. So I guess um, I think the kind of most egregious examples of normal companies doing this are making it so hard to cancel something. So especially anything, I, I think it's so bad when you can order something online, so like a subscription, you can only cancel it by phone. Like I'm a millennial. I'm not phoning anybody. Like, you know, I'm going to have that subscription till I die. Like, it's just not right. I, I'm a geriatric millennial, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> oh, um, uh, an original millennial, I believe we'll call it. Now. Okay, we'll that's, re that's a better. Rebranded. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, so th th those sort of dark patterns of sign yeah. up is click, click, click. Unsubscribe is crosses moving all over the place, phone calls to expensive numbers, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Absolute scumbags, those people in that industry. There, yeah. there is um, someone in the States at the minute, and again, I forget who it is. I was only reading about it the other day, who's trying to get the government to legislate against that. Oh, really? And the way they're trying to frame the legislation is that the, the unsubscribe process can only have the same kind of the same number of steps in it as the sign-up process or the the same it has to be able to be done in the same way so if you can sign up online by putting a credit card in and clicking okay you have to be able to unsubscribe by mm. telling them the reason and clicking okay so that's the way they're trying to, to frame it i can't help but thinking that legislation as much as this is a pain in the ass in the industry legislation feels like a sledgehammer approach to cracking a nut because as soon as you legislate against something, you just find all the holes in it. And then it's like, oh, well, we're okay now because we're within the legislation. Yeah. You like the right approach to it. Yeah, I know what you mean. I'd be surprised if something like that passed in the US where they kind of love capitalism and are always on the side of the company rather than the consumer. But yeah, I think it's definitely one for, yeah, I wouldn't legislate on something like that. That feels like a very a shove more than a nudge type approach. Yeah. Definitely. And tell me, why don't millennials use the phone anymore? <laughs> you are now the, the official spokesperson for all of the millennials. Why don't people use the phone anymore? Uh, it's terrifying. You know, who's on the other side of it? I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 um, I, I worked with um, 
so some people younger than myself when I was, I was consulting in a company and I said, I was like, you need to learn to pick the phone up and ring people because you've sent them six emails. I haven't responded to We just need to ring them to find out what's happening. And they're like, well, shall I send them an email to, to set up an appointment? It's like, just pick the phone up and ring. If they're not busy, they'll like, you can't ring someone without setting an appointment. Do you, do you not like message people first before you ring them? Like, no. I just ring them and it was honestly as if I was the biggest monster in the world because I didn't set an appointment, even with a friend. I didn't message them to first to say, can I ring you? I'm like, really? <laughs> when did this change? I definitely need appointments. I will say even with friends, because if someone calls me out of the blue, I'm like, what on earth? Who is dead? Like what's happening? <laughs> There's definitely an emergency or like what you want something from me or, you know, like it's it's a very stressful experience to have an unexpected phone call, definitely. I, I mean, I, I, I get that feeling as well, but that's usually after nine o'clock at night or before seven in the morning, <laughs> yeah. so, somebody's dead. And although I do have, have some strict rules in the business as well, I don't ring anyone after two o'clock on a Friday. Uh, an old colleague of mine, Heather, taught me, taught me this. She was like, only phone call you get after two o'clock on a Friday is a problem. You don't want to be that person ringing anyone. I was like, that's a really good point, that, actually. That yeah, a good so. point. Yeah. So every time my phone rings on a Friday afternoon, I'm like, oh. <laughs> um, listen, we, we, we're coming, heading quickly towards the last lap of this, um, unfortunately. Remember, we are going to get you back to talk menu pricing again at Christmas. Um, we'll probably do a teardown of them, something like that. But right. <clears throat> as we get to the end of each podcast, we talk about uh, books, podcasts, other things where you, where you go for your information. Um, I put links to them all in the show notes. So if anybody wants to click on them, you can you know, go off and find them and buy them. Um, so what what books do you read? Do you recommend? I obviously wave the nudge unit around and recommend that. But what, what are your, your recommendations? Ooh, um, so I have read quite a few books this year about business scams for no apparent reason. I just got really into it. So I read um, Bad Blood by John Carreyou about um, Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. Amazing book. Very, very good. Would recommend that to anybody it's it's more like a kind of thriller intrigue type book than just about a kind of business that went a bit wrong it's it's very good um also got quite into Enron Bernie Madoff I wouldn't necessarily recommend those books as much but it was it was a weird rabbit hole I was in in about February time <laughs> I was just That's yeah it's right. good <laughs> um I feel like I probably should recommend a behavioral science book as a behavioral scientist um my favorite ever I would probably say is misbehaving by richard thaler so it's kind of the history of how kind of behavioral economics evolved from sort of neoclassical economics and how it kind of fused with psychology and then got into you know policy and nobel prize winning and all of that stuff so it's a really good book um i wouldn't if you haven't read nudge if you haven't read thinking fast and slow don't bother just you know i just wouldn't <laughs> just save yourself the time like thinking fast and slow is a useful reference book like i've never read it all the way through but i've used it to kind of flick through like here's the definition for anchoring or whatever but don't bother um I, I feel much the same about um simon sinek's um oh uh, yeah what's it? I forget what it's called. I've read it Does again. It start, start with why? Start with why. Yeah. Yeah. It's like watch the TED Talk. Ten minutes. Really, really interesting. Fascinating TED Talk. It's great. Read the book. Somebody said you need to write forty thousand words, and he's taken a ten-minute TED Talk into forty thousand words. Yeah. And he's like, oh, it's the best book ever. It's not. It's a shit book. The concept <laughs> is fascinating, and he explains it in a brilliant, brilliant way. But just watch the TED Talk. That's it. Yeah. 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 I do find that with a lot of these kind of when someone's got an idea and it's a brilliant idea, but then they have to flesh out a whole book for it. Like it could have been a pamphlet. Like, yeah, I don't... Yeah, it was a blog, wasn't it? It was like, yeah, this exactly. would have been a great blog. Absolutely. Blog. Exactly. It's a shame. Um, <laughs> can I recommend fiction? Is that going to yeah, be Yeah, book? listen, we've had cookbooks. Um, <laughs> uh, so somebody re re recommended Otto Lange's cookbook. Oh, yeah, we've had a couple good. of bits of fiction. So yeah, anything really, anything you recommend, oh, anything excellent. you like. Well, I mean, on cookbooks, Midnight Chicken by... Ella Risbridger is very, very good. It's kind of part story, part cookbook, and all of the recipes are really sort of stodgy and comforting and um, Listen, the blueberry I, muffins. I love chicken. Is there lots of chicken recipes in there? Quite a lot of chicken. There's um, the recipe for midnight chicken, which is basically roast chicken that she made one time at midnight when she was in the throes of depression. It's quite a f like, it's written in a very funny way. Um, and then there's some kind of 
sticky chicken wing type recipe. It's it's very good. It's a very good book. Um, your, your frame of reference, I'm, I'm concerned about you, Julia, actually, because so far we've talked about end of life care, people with depression, um, <laughs> some of the biggest financial scandals the world has ever seen. Give us something. What, what, what do you do for fun? What, what do you do for kicks? Uh, read about financial scandals, oh. mainly. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> no, I really... And, and, you, and you argue on dates over the way that the menus <laughs> put around. It's like, come on, Julia, you must do something for kicks. Um, it's The sad thing about the pandemic is I've realised I have no hobbies that aren't eating. Um, but, know, what a hobby, though. What a I hobby. Know, I know. Like, when all the restaurants close, I was like, well, that's it. There goes my entire lifestyle. So, no, I do, I do nothing for fun, I'm afraid. How terrible is that? Um, right. And I suppose one last question is, what, um, what one question were you expecting me to ask you that I haven't asked? Do you know, when you sent me this list of questions, I was like, well, there's nothing about ethics here. So that's going to be my thing that I thought he'd asked, but we've spent a lot of time talking about ethics. So actually, um, I've remembered one question that I thought I was going to ask you that I didn't ask you. Oh yeah. Tell us briefly about managing stress. You told a lovely story in your oh, thing yeah. about, um, our hunter gatherer ancestors and how they manage stress and why that inf influences how we manage stress. Tell us that story if, if you're. Okay. So this is another book recommendation, actually burnout by Emily and Amelia Nagoski. Um, it's more aimed at women because it's kind of how um, all of our kind of life pressures plus societal pressures make burnout happen. But I think men could get a lot out of it as well. So they introduce um, something they call the stress cycle, which is basically um, our physiological response to stress. So when we were back in our kind of um, our ancestors out in the Serengeti, we would have been stressed out by something like, a you know, a big toothed saber toothed tiger or, you know, a another human we didn't recognize with a big spear so that floods our brain with um the right hormones to respond to it basically so we've got cortisol adrenaline that kind of get us ready to do fight or flight we then act on that so run as fast as we can in the opposite direction or kind of get into a fight or whatever it is and then we're using up all of that energy we kind of get back to our safe base with our our tribe and all of our family and friends and then we can kind of relax properly and we're ready to respond again the problem we have now is that instead of being a kind of physical threat, we're more likely to have a kind of emotional or um, kind of cognitive stressor. So it might be um, our boss yelling at us. It might be, a, you know, a sort of aggressive email we've received. It might be an angry customer, all of these different things. And what that does is it produces the same stress response in our brain. Instead of being able to run away or to fight, uh, we have to just kind of sit there and suck it up and we can't deal with it the way that our brain and our body is kind of wired to, to help us deal with it so we kind of sit there with all of these hormones swilling around our body and this over the long term is what causes burnout effectively um, but there are ways that you can address that so in the book they talk about kind of five ways was it seven ways maybe I think I might have cut it down but um, five ways that you can address that so it's things like getting more sleep um, getting lots of exercise of course um, mindfulness is one um, connecting with others so making sure that we're spending time with family and friends and even kind of some creative arts therapy so things like um drama or singing or um dancing or even kind of journaling and doodling and all of those things can really kind of help release all that pent-up energy and help us deal with that stress brilliant the one lesson i took from that is that juliet hodges part of the behavioral insights team at booper recommends punching annoying clients when you're annoying <laughs> boss because that is actually the best way to deal with a physical response or running yeah. away really quickly <laughs> punching them really does let out those chemicals and that's your recommendation juliet that's right it, it is i mean that's what the brain wants us to do it's it's science and if, uh, science said you can punch your boss or punch a customer today <laughs> Yeah, heard it here first on the strategy sessions. Um, and when I edit this up and clip it to put it out in uh, pre-promotion for the show, that's all it's going to say is Juliet going, yeah, just punch your boss, it's fine. Um, so Juliet, thank you very much for letting me misquote you and for coming on the podcast. It's been a pile of fun. I've really, really enjoyed this. Thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. It's been great.